Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, jmintheam.org. And with us on this show, we will have Haber uh, Knesset Dove Lippmann, as well as Republican political strategist Jessica Proud, as and also Richard Slushel, who is chairing the upcoming NORPAC mission to Washington. So we're going to have a varied show about uh, politics all over the place and all kinds of different different things. And we're going to save some of the headlines and maybe some of the commentary for the end. Hopefully we'll get to it, because I want to welcome our first guest of the evening here, Haver Knesset, Rabbi Dov Lippmann who is the first American in many years, or American-born in many years, to hold a Knesset seat. And uh, I would say, uh, respectfully, just no disrespect meant, it was somewhat of a surprise that his party, Yeshatid, headed by Yair Lapid, was as successful as it was in these past elections. Rabbi Littman, or Haver Knesset Littman, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you so much. It's so good to be on with you. So uh, how should we address you, Rabbi Haver Knesset, Dove, or what's the best? I, I like Dove, but uh, okay, people, well, tell me, people tell me that we're supposed to give honor to the office, and I certainly respect that as well, but whatever you're comfortable with. Okay, so let's uh, let's give honor to the office. Chavar Knesset Lippmann, you are on uh, your American rock star tour, if you will, at this point, right? Uh, you're, you're here, you're going to have a whirlwind uh, weekend of speaking engagements and uh, meetings at, with, uh, with all kinds of different people in the New York Jewish community. Uh, it's been really fantastic so far. I landed yesterday morning, and uh, I've been scheduled literally from morning to night. And uh, it's an honor to be here, not asking for anybody's vote, not asking for anybody's money for anything, uh, but just to really share good news about uh, Israel and uh, really reconnect people to Israel, especially in this week leading up to Yom Ha'atzmaut. Uh, interesting, as far as the timing in particular, I guess between Yom HaShoah and Yom HaZikaron slash Yom HaTzmaud, and this I guess would be your first one as a as an official member of Knesset. Uh, when you made Aliyah back in 2004, did you ever expect to be in politics? No, uh, I really had no aspirations uh, to get involved in politics. I definitely have a background where I certainly saw my family and my mother and my father uh, activists and people who are active in the community, and that was certainly naturally the direction that I was going to go in in general, but uh, never really, uh, I really was a person of education. I was looking forward to a career in Israel, teaching in uh, post-high school yeshivot and seminaries for uh, North American students, and I certainly would have found uh, significant satisfaction in that path and was not uh, headed towards politics. And if you had planned on a career in politics, it probably would not have been with the party that you're affiliated with. Well, uh, first of all, the party didn't exist when we first made Aliyah. Okay, but, uh, fair enough. Even, e- but even after I made the decision to enter the political realm, when I realized that, that that's where real change uh, takes place and, and I felt that real change was needed, uh, I have to be honest and say that uh, Yair uh, was not on my radar screen as someone who I thought I could work together with. Uh, unfortunately, we live in a world with... Uh, the rumor mill and people like to tell stories about people and uh, to be frank, all I had was negative uh, about him and, and I would not have thought that he was a person uh, that I could work uh, together with. So I'm, I, I thank God that I had the wisdom to look into it a little bit more and investigate and get to know him and uh, I found a person who I not only can relate to but has a very similar vision for the future of Israel. So let's unpack the narrative a little bit of, of your career arc, I guess, as it relates to the last year and a half, two years. Uh, you you got involved in some of the strife, I guess, the intra-Orthodox strife in uh, Beit Shemesh. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, there are groups, as there are in, I guess, every culture, uh, but there are extremists, uh, religious extremists that uh, live in Beit Shemesh, and uh, they flex their muscles in terms of trying to control uh, of certain areas of the city, including uh, right around the corner from my home. And uh, when the well-known incident uh, took place, or a few months' worth of uh, verbal assaults and at times physical assaults on, on little girls, uh, I was there every day uh, to try to protect the girls on the one hand, make sure that they got home safely, and then take it to the next level in terms of trying to get the police, the governmental authorities involved to stop this from happening, and they didn't. Uh, 
And I'm not here today uh, to bash or berate uh, any particular people or authorities, but it made me realize that something was really rotten, and uh, I felt the need to get involved and to try to be part of the process of uh, uh, combating uh, that extremism and to enable the world and Israel and the world to see the beauty of uh, Haredi and ultra-Orthodox Judaism and, and not to be exposed to that to the ugly side of these extremists. So where did you take it from there? Was it, uh, why not run for mayor of Beit Shemesh? Why run for Knesset? Well, I actually uh, did not make an initial decision to run for Knesset. Uh, my initial step in terms of contacting Yair was really uh, thinking about Beit Shemesh, actually, and, and hoping to find a national party that could help Beit Shemesh. Over the last few years, as we've been experiencing the various issues in Beit Shemesh, uh, I felt that none of the existing parties uh, really rose to the occasion and, and helped us despite our turning to them. Uh, so I was looking for a party to really help HM. Uh, it evolved over time into running for Knesset, but uh, even when I was helping HFT on a national level, the possibilities for running for a position, it didn't necessarily be mayor, uh, in Chemish was, was still on the table. So it wasn't a decision to jump specifically to a national office. Well, I guess a little bit different in, in Israel, given the size of the country and running for Knesset, the, in a certain sense, is almost like uh, running for a state legislature here in America, but... Uh, so, I understand. Weren't you originally going to run together uh, in the Amshalem uh, list? At w- what point well, did you... Yeah, no. I initially reached out to a uh, former member of Knesset of Amsalem, this is a while ago, in 2010 already, uh, to help him out. And again, with no intention of running for Knesset. Uh, he did, at a certain point, uh, offer me a position very high on his list, certainly far higher than I was offered in the HOT. Uh, the issue there, and it's not something I want to really focus on, I, I was really looking to be part of uh, a party which really represented total unity, breaking down all the barriers and having religious and secular and men and women and Sephardic and Ashkenazic and Ethiopians and Russians and all of us uh, working together. And I didn't really find that in Amshalim, even though I very much value Rabbi Amsalem and his vision. Uh, and I did find that in, in the Ashatid. And uh, I'm happy to say that while on the one hand I'm sad that Rabbi Amsalem uh, did not make him to the Knesset, uh, both myself and Actually, another person who was very involved in um, Shalem and also offered a spot on the list was, is now chief of staff in the uh, religion ministry, and the two of us together will certainly be making sure to implement uh, many of the changes that Rabbi Salom was seeking to make. Just to go back to Beit Shemesh for a second, where, where do things stand, I guess, with regards to... It's out of the headlines, and we've probably seen... Uh, there is still stratification there, obviously, with between different neighborhoods. And if uh, I think it behooves us to say that some of the most uh, extreme elements of Yerushalmi society, Ada uh, Haredi's followers, uh, are, are have their satellite community in Beit Shemesh. So it's a it's a it's a, a little bit of an interesting mixture for that's not ati- that's atypical of any place else in Israel, uh, but. There are municipal elections coming up there. What will happen in as far as will there be changes? Will people see your election potentially as a way, as maybe a wake-up call? Well, on the one hand, there's no doubt that uh, – let me just say this first, actually. Beit Shemesh is a wonderful place to live, and uh, we are, you know, our family is thriving there, and, and schools are there, and the location is wonderful, and you know, it's such a beautiful place to live in terms of the areas that surround it, and uh, it's very important to emphasize, and the communities are, are, are absolutely fantastic, and, and many people have found uh, wonderful homes there. Uh, it, is quiet, it has quieted down in general in terms of the extremism. Uh, there are always pockets of – trouble here and there, but certainly not something which is overwhelmingly uh, an issue. Uh, we are very much gearing up for the elections in October. Uh, there is a process that's underway to find uh, a single candidate from the general population. And when I say general population, I mean from moderate Haredi through secular to work together and, and really create a unified camp. Uh, that process is underway and will be successful. I'm involved behind the scenes uh, uh, in that process, and I'm very confident that uh, we'll be able to uh, take the city back. And when I say take the city back, I want to just emphasize, I, I don't mean out of the control of a Haredi mayor. You can have a, a Haredi mayor who is wonderful and, and successful and, and, and provides services for the entire city and all the populations. It's not an issue of Haredi leadership or not. It's a question of leadership that gives in to the extremist element or not, and, and also manages the city properly. So we're looking forward to that, and I really believe that 
uh, a new leader will be able to take the city in a much better direction. Is that a different list? Uh, there's what is the Tove party that you had been involved in? Is that that uh, is I, that that party? Yeah, I was never involved in, in any kind of official way in the Tove party. Okay. I, I very much I very much commend uh, the very brave members of the Tove party who are Haredi. Uh, well, tell us about the Tove, tell us about the Tove party for the listeners. What is the Tove party and what does it represent? Sure. Uh, essentially, uh, the Israeli Haredi uh, population has had uh, two parties that have been involved, the Shaft Party, which is more the Sephardic side, and the uh, United Torah Judaism, which is a combination of Degel HaTorah, which is a Lithuanian wing of Ashkenazic Haredim, and Aguda, which is the more Hasidic uh, wing, and they work together in a, a joint party called UTJ. Uh, Tov was started by people who felt that these parties, and I agree wholeheartedly, that UTJ and Shas do not represent the best interests of the average Haredi who understands that you can be fervently orthodox and fervently committed religiously and believe in the primacy of Torah and Torah study, but also be educated and support your family with dignity and be part of Israeli uh, society uh, while obviously observing halakha in every sense of the word. And the Three pop uh, parties were not representing that. They were representing uh, a notion which says that the only way to truly succeed as a Haredi Jew is to study Torah day and night for your entire life. And that wasn't representing this group. So they rose up and, and through great courage and under very dire circumstances, difficult circumstances, uh, started this party called Tov. They have two seats at the municipal level in Betar and one seat on the municipal level in uh, Beit Shemesh. I have heard, I don't have this verification for sure, that they have 40,000 members, and if that's true, it's remarkable, and I think it's a very important step for the Haredi community. There have been attempts in the past. I think at one point there was an attempt in Harnof uh, amongst the anglo Haredim and different, uh, and different parts of the Haredi public to organize this non-traditional Israeli party, uh, and they've never been successful. Uh, so I, I guess the question is: Is this going to be a is this a, a sustaining model? Are, are there actually going to be a, uh, enough a criti- of a critical mass that are going to be attracted to this to this vision? Well, I think that uh, the answer is yes. I do believe that once people recognize that you can raise your children as uh, fervently orthodox and Haredi Haredi Varashem and still have them have basic general studies and be trained properly to sustain their families with dignity and actually fulfill what they promised in the Ksuva at their wedding, which is to sustain their families. Uh, once they realize that it's not a contradiction, I do believe you'll see people flocking towards this idea. Yet We have to remember that uh, Israeli Haredim in particular grew up in a world where that wasn't an option. They, they didn't see a model uh, for that balance. I think that the American Haredim, and I certainly see myself uh, in this camp, uh, you know, growing up and seeing that every single yeshiva, no matter how uh, religious and how yeshivish and the like, has general studies at the high school level, and you study basic math and science and English, and then you have the opportunity to go learn in Chayim Berlin and go to Brooklyn College at nighttime, or do what I did in Dari Israel and, and have an official program and balance the two together. So we know that it's possible. We know that you can create great Tamidei Chachamim and people who are completely committed to Halacha, but who also uh, are, are receiving this education outside of the Torah curriculum. And uh, once you realize that it's possible, I think people will flock to it and embrace it. Well, we also have two models here amongst the Haredi population here in, here in the U.S. There is that model that you cited of, of college and yeshiva, or yeshiva, I should say, and college as afterthought or secondary, but there's also the Lakewood model that says that no college, and there are a lot of people on that track. It's not exclusively one or the other. You also have, amongst Hasidish Mostos here in New York, even, and elsewhere, that are giving very little in the way of secular studies after a certain age. So it's not it's not one versus the other, I think, but I agree with you. The model does is certainly able to be successful here to to a large degree what what happens when the the leadership of uh, of gibble or yadura torah and shah sees these sees these initiatives i guess at this point to call it as a as a real threat and do there's a history at least in israel and elsewhere of People in the Haredi community, or even even anywhere in the Orthodox community, kind of melting away when there's when there's backlash. Well, I, my analysis, uh, from what I've seen on the ground in Israel, is that 
the, the changes that are coming anyway uh, at a government level will certainly play a major role here. Uh, the, the Haredi political parties, which again, I, I do not feel represent the best interests of uh, the Haredi community and, and to enable Torah to flourish even more and be strengthened, uh, I, I, I don't think that they have the ability at this point to stop uh, that legislation from being carried out. And once uh, there is the the breaking down of the doors, so to speak, and the ideas of general studies and the idea of service uh, are in place, and, and the next few years when, when Yeshiva boys or, or Avrechim or Kaizen Kolel will be allowed to just go to work without uh, doing service, while all this happens, they can scream as much as they want against it, but the reality is going to find itself on the ground with guys taking advantage of the opportunity uh, to go to work and, and, and not see themselves as destined uh, to be impoverished uh, for the rest of their lives. And uh, I think as they begin to see that you can balance together uh, Torah with this approach of, of being part of the broader society, uh, all the screaming and, and, and uh, acting out that the uh, Haredi members of Knesset uh, do, certainly the Knesset and through the press and the, and the propaganda which they spread about what our intentions are in passing this legislation, I think it all falls to the side because people are, are wise enough to see right through it. I think to a certain extent there has, when we talk about this propaganda and some of the screaming, you've been made into a little bit of a public enemy. Uh, to a certain degree, you also, Naftali Bennett, certainly was uh, has been made into a, an enemy of the Haredi community. How, how, as a as a firm Jew, how does that how does that take you? Uh, how do you react to that? Well, on, on, on one hand, I, I I I'm very comfortable in my own skin. I know that uh, no one can find any example, not one example, of any time where I've said anything uh, against Haredim. Uh, I think the same can be said for Naftali. The same, by the way, can be said for Yair Lapid. Uh, so you can raise the propaganda and attack, but uh, at the end of the day, I, I'm very comfortable in my own skin and, and with myself because I know uh, that uh, the things that are being said are not accurate and, and, and just can't be shown anywhere. That's number one. Number two, there's tremendous satisfaction in the number of Haredim who have turned to me. Uh, for assistance from the moment that I took office uh, on a daily basis. Uh, my, a primary focus of mine is the project of helping Karidim get to the workforce. I started a Knesset task force uh, to help Karidim get to the workforce. I know that my party will be spending a significant amount of, of money. Uh, we have control of the finance ministry, and those funds will be going to help Karidim get to the workforce. I'm generating a group of volunteer attorneys to help Karidim who experience discrimination. Uh, in the workforce where they're turned away from jobs because they're Haredi. And I'm very proud to know that uh, through all the negative attacks and, and things that people want to say, I know what I'm actually doing. And I know what I stand for. And therefore, it's sad. It's sad to hear what people say about you, uh, but it doesn't stop me uh, from moving forward because I, I know the MS with which I've uh, carried myself from the beginning of the process. So talk for a second about the economic climate because the economic situation, I guess the finance situation, the fiscal situation in Israel right now is not great. There's a huge budget deficit, and I think to a certain degree, a lot of the popularity of, of Yeshatid and your party had to do with more equality or more for the middle class, uh, for the Israeli middle class, and not to be forgotten. Uh, how will people within the party feel about allocating money towards Haredi society, when a lot of the middle class, at risk of saying the taxpaying part of Israel, is also clamoring for those, that type of funding? Well, I think that everybody understands uh, that more Haredi in the workforce means more tax revenue being generated and means less people surviving simply off uh, government handouts. That's number one. Number two, uh, I can stand up and say and look people in the eye and tell everyone that every member of the team sincerely cares about Karedim, uh, sincerely cares for people who are in a situation where they cannot sustain their families uh, with dignity and sincerely wants to give them and empower them uh, to be able to live their lives in, in a different manner and not suffer uh, the poverty which has certainly been uh, cast upon them by, by their leadership. So uh, everyone's very comfortable with it, uh, and it, it's part of uh, creating an economy where you have people during the workforce. We're, we're very capitalist in nature in general, and the ultimate goal is to get more people off of welfare and more people into working. 
and uh, that's the ultimate goal and perspective that we have in terms of how to get things back on track economically. Uh, the middle class, small businesses are the engine that makes uh, the economy work, and, and that's the ultimate goal is to get all that, uh, to upstart that again. Talk for a second about your trip itself. I, I think if I don't have the entire itinerary in front of me, uh, or have I seen it, but just a sampling of where you've been going, it's very heavy on the centrist or modern Orthodox community. And are, are you, at the same time, meeting with Haredi leadership here in New York? Are you, are you trying, to, trying to go ahead and vow, uh, advocate for the same changes here in New York, here in the U.S.? It's not my place to be uh, advocating for any changes uh, in New York, and that's uh, the New York community's responsibility to deal with. Uh, let me well, say I, I'm sorry, I, I apologize. I, I probably misspoke the question. What I'm saying is okay. the, the Haredi community in the U.S. has a significant influence and has actually a significant bankroller, I, I guess, of the uh, Haredi community in, in Eretz Yisrael. So the question is, like, are you trying to advocate for those types of, uh, of issues in uh, here in the U.S., uh, because I, I guess what I've seen is that the the trip is very heavy on uh, meetings with the uh, with the centrist or modern orthodox community. Yeah, I will say that I will meet anyone, anytime, any place if it can help the overall cause. I'm open to meeting with leadership of all the populations. Uh, attempts have been made uh, to uh, have meetings with the more Haredi side of the United States and uh, have not borne total fruit yet, but. Uh, if anyone is listening and anyone wants to sit down and talk about the issues, uh, I'm certainly open to it, and I'm certainly hopeful that before the end of the trip, uh, some of those meetings will take place. Uh, my message, by the way, and this is important for all the listeners to understand, for the modern Orthodox or even uh, non-Orthodox communities in uh, New York and New Jersey, uh, has been on the one hand to explain the changes that we want to make uh, in Israel, which include some changes in the Haredi society, but... Uh, Every single place that we've gone to, I've talked about the strength of the Haredi community, the strength of Torah, the beauty of the chesed and the warmth that you can find within the Haredi community, and that my dream is that Haredi community can be part of Israeli society so that everybody can see that and be influenced by that. So it is in no way at all what I'm sure people would suggest it would be, and that is a uh, tour where people would assume that someone is walking around and saying negative things about Torah or the uh, Haredi community, God forbid, uh, it's balancing both. On the one hand, uh, sharing what the ultimate goal is in terms of Israeli society, which touches also on the Haredi community, uh, but also I feel a responsibility as an ambassador of sorts to make sure that people understand the, the positive side and it shouldn't take this as a, as a negative uh, declaration about that community. Of course, it isn't every newly minted Knesset member who gets to speak at the 92nd Street Y, so obviously there's something specific. But as we wrap up, I want to just address political questions here, because this is a show about politics, and you, of course, are a politician now, even though you wanted to be an educator, so it's it's terrible what they did to you. But uh, Yeshatid, as a force in Israeli politics, kind of was the big surprise of the of the Israeli election, Every, the assumption had been that Bibi was a genius in calling elections and that he was going to have a tremendous mandate. But it turns out that your party, uh, through the leadership of uh, Yari Lapid, is, has uh, had become quite a significant force. So tell us a little bit about that and what do you think the future of the Yeshatid party is? Uh, as someone who, uh, who is very close to all the members of the Yeshatid party, uh, you did a wonderful job in creating a family uh, out of this party. You know, in Israeli politics, within most parties, it's a lot of backstabbing and, and people try to outdo the other. And here there really is a unity of purpose. Uh, I believe that Yeshatid is a party that will be around for uh, decades to come. I personally believe that Yair Lapid is a future prime minister uh, of Israel. I think he uh, understands uh, politics. He surrounds himself with very good people. He has a vision for where he wants Israel to go, and it's one which I think Israeli society has embraced. And I think that uh, Yesha Tid is going to contribute wonderful things uh, to the future of the country. What do you think about the fact that the election was so f- focused on domestic issues, on the on the f- financial issues, the economic issues, as opposed to some of the big existential issues for Israel, Iran, <laughs> and uh, the, the Matzav, as well as uh, Syria and Lebanon? 
I think that is, Israelis have come to realize that for decades we've been focusing, first of all, on right wing versus left wing on the Palestinian conflict. Uh, and in the process, uh, in focusing on that, we've allowed ourselves to decay as a people from within, more polarization between the communities, not really addressing some of the core issues that are just uh, necessary for our country to survive. Uh, we've plummeted in terms of education, uh, electoral reform is needed, and all these things have been pushed to the side. And Israelis have woken up and said, it's time for us to really deal with those issues. In terms of Iran and Syria and the like, I think that people realize that every Israeli prime minister whether it's right-wing or left-wing or center, or when it comes down to it, we'll take care of Israel's security needs and we'll uh, take whatever actions are necessary to, to protect uh, the country. And people looked at themselves in the mirror and said, it's time for a real change. We ran on a slogan of Badu Lashanduk, we've come to make change. It's time for new politics. We're not career politicians. We're activists from a variety of realms who have decided to enter politics to make a difference. And people are really seeing that happen. They are blown away by the fact that there's a party which stuck to its values, uh, through the elections, after the elections, now that we're in government. And I want to make one more point. This party, which so many people identify falsely or wrongly, I should say, as being uh, not positive for religion or for Torah, uh, more Torah has been spoken from the Knessetorium from our party than, I think, in the history of the Knesset. And we're the first party that stood up and actually arranged a bait drash um, on a weekly basis for the members of Knesset. It's the first time in the history of the Knesset that that happened, and that was also a Yesha team initiative. I'm very proud uh, to be part of that party, and I'm happy that such a large party, which is having such influence on the country, on the political realm, uh, can hopefully also have a very positive influence on the spiritual realm. Well, beautiful. One last question, uh, Haver Knesset Lipman. The Anglos in, uh, in Israel have really not been a force in electoral politics. And there's always been, uh, I I don't know for what reason, but it's just been the case. Uh, and I don't mean just Americans, but uh, you know, Westerners, uh, English, Australians, South Africans and the like have never really been uh, a force in electoral politics. Is that changing? I know that you were tasked specifically with that type of outreach. And what, what did you see on the campaign trail? And what do you see going forward? What was interesting was during the campaign, especially during the debates that we had in English, uh, you know, all the other parties where people were uh, ranked higher than I was on their lists, they used that card. You know, vote for my party, you'll have an Anglo candidate. I did not use that once. I never mentioned that. Uh, I really ran on the values, and in the end, so I realized that I ended up as that member of Knesset. I do view myself very much as a representative of the English-speaking community, and uh, our inbox in the Knesset office will, will bear that out, and I'm very honored, and, and I take it very seriously that uh, people need assistance with various things, and we try to help uh, wherever we can. The reason why there's never going to be, from my perspective, and there's no need for an Anglo uh, political entity of any kind is because in politics we are really all, around, all across the board in terms of our beliefs, and I think that Anglos have very much uh, taken care of their needs uh, by you know, reaching out and, and trying to take care of their, on their own. There's no need for a, a political party. At the same time, I, I really do believe it's very important that we have uh, representation of the Knesset. I think that it's a very important voice in the Knesset. Um, certainly my role on the Immigration uh, Absorption and Diaspora Affairs Committee, I will be tackling issues uh, for the English-speaking community which have, which have been neglected, and um, they are needs. Uh, people that, and the government just doesn't realize that they have those needs, and uh, I'm looking forward to trying to make things better for people who currently live in Israel and hopefully to inspire uh, far more Aliyah from uh, North America. For all those listening, a few hundred thousand North American Jews would move to Israel. Uh, we could make the country uh, a much better place, and I certainly hope that uh, people will consider doing so. Well, Chava Knesset Dov Lipman, thank you very much for joining us on Spin Class. How does one get in touch with you if they if they want to they want to chat with you? Two ways. One way is certainly to the email to Knesset. You can email dlipman at knesset.gov.il. And we will be in touch with you for sure. Uh, Yeshatin is a party which very much believes in Facebook. We believe that it's important to have that direct uh, correspondence with both supporters and uh, those who are not in support of the party. And I do have a Facebook page, Dove Lipman, and you can like that page and send me messages. Uh, and like I said, I'm welcome to criticism. I think it's important. Uh, to hear criticism, and certainly if people have questions, uh, I'd be more than happy to be in touch. And that page is manned by me, and that's part of the policy. It's not manned by staff at all. Every night I sit down for a little while and try to correspond with people, and I welcome everyone uh, to be in touch on that Facebook page as well. Kaver Knesset, Dov Lipman, thank you for joining us here on Spin Class, and hopefully we'll have you again very, very soon. Thank you so much. All the best. You too.
Switching gears as we do from the international to the national, if not local, we have joining us Jessica Proud, a, a PR and political consultant with NLO, NLO Strategies, excuse me, right here in New York, and dubbed this week a rising star in the New York GOP. And uh, certainly that was in the aftermath of some negative publicity for the New York GOP. So uh, Jessica is tasked with being one of those who is going to resurrect the New York GOP and the GOP beyond and restore the Republican brand. But Jessica, welcome to Spin Class. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about the rising stars and what uh, what might be uh, what might voters be able to expect from a Republican Party that's uh, taken a couple shots recently. Well, I think it, you know, for me personally, it was um, such an honor to be included with so many young and up and coming elected officials around the state. I think they had a good selection, and there was actually many more that they that weren't even included um, right here in New York City. You know, you have Councilman uh, Vinny Ignizio and uh, Jimmy Otto and Joe Borelli and Staten Island that just got elected. So I think, um, you, you know, despite a lot of the hardships of the party right now, there's definitely a lot of people that are out there every day. They are getting elected and making a difference. And you know, it's up to the party organization to really grow so we can support that and hopefully they can run for higher office. So, Jessica, you've been involved with quite a few uh, successful campaigns on the GOP side here in New York. What's the key to a victory? And I, I think that we can differentiate both the city and the suburbs if you want. What's the key to a Republican victory? Sure. I mean, every campaign is different, so it really depends. But I think it's um, it's about tapping into a, a sentiment in the electorate and, and having good candidates. You know, sometimes we get stuck with candidates that aren't so great. Maybe they're, you know, they don't have the background or they don't have, you know, the, the communication skills. So when you get a candidate that has all of the components that are necessary to be successful, that certainly helps. I mean, running in these blue districts is never easy, and sometimes you can run you know, a textbook perfect campaign and and still come up short. And then there's other times where you get lucky. But I think it's about, you know, capitalizing on opportunities when when they come up. And, you know, certainly if you look at Bob Turner and um, the special election, you know, when he won his congressional seat, it was really, you know, when he started out, no one thought he could win. And it was just driving the ball forward every day, and and it was able to turn around and get people's attention. And there were some pivotal moments in the campaign that really, you know, got people's attention and and changed the game. So it really depends, but having the good candidates to begin with is critical. So 2009 was the I get in the four year cycle was the last was the last uh, time that post presidential pre statewide gubernatorial so in the four four year cycle 2009 is like 2013 coming up you had mm-hmm. new york city elections but at the same time you had elections in the suburbs that saw two surprise victories i think from county executives rob astorino and ed Man- in in westchester county and ed mangano in nassau county and you were involved in the astorino race i uh, was yeah so tell us about rob astorino who really was probably political unknown running against a legend in new york in new york state politics andy spano yeah, he was. And what Rob had run, um, he was a former uh, county legislator, and he had ran in uh, 2005 and actually lost by the same amount that he ended up winning by in 2009. And I think, you know, again, with that race, it was unique because there was a combination of factors. The incumbent, um, who was well-liked but had been in office for a long time, and the taxes had risen consistently every year, Um, He had gotten a little fat and happy, as you would say, like, you know, taking trips and, you know, had a bodyguard. And so things, you know, the economy was really in a bad place. And I think people were feeling like, you know, he was a little tone deaf when it came to those issues. And he had this 12-year record that we were able to, you know, really, people were really finally receptive to it. I mean, Rob had the same message. He always likes to say, I ran in 2005 on the same message of tax and spending. But at that time, people weren't, that wasn't resonating with people. They weren't receptive to that message because things were going well. And then fast forward four years, and it was a very different uh, tune. So, um, you know, this year he is up for re-election again, and it's going to be a totally different campaign because now it's about continuing the work that he did the past four years and, 
and not changing direction. So it's a different message to the voters. So the voters have to be really angry for a Republican to win? Is that the idea? They have to be really sick of taxes? Uh, no, I don't think. I mean, it helps for sure. I don't think that's the only way you can win. But certainly, you know, Republicans are kind of, they always do well when there's, you know, there is a situation where, you know, the economy is bad or crime is high, you know, where where tend to be thought of, the perception is as good managers, you know, and this is in ideal situations, obviously, that didn't prove true for Mitt Romney. But um, so I think it's, it's definitely an easier path when you have those types of circumstances. But I wouldn't say that that's, um, it has to be that way in order to win. Talk about expanding the electoral pie for a Republican. I think that's the real buzzword that uh, the GOP autopsy kind of identified is that the Republican Party is increasingly catering to the 47% or even below that. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because it's certainly our economic message when we're talking with the Democrats about, you know, they want to divide the pie and we want to grow it bigger when it comes to expanding the economy. But I think that's absolutely critical if we were going to be competitive, especially here in New York, where we do have such a strong minority population, Women are becoming a larger-than-ever voting block, and we saw huge gender gap issues in this past cycle. So, um, you know, I would love to see the party reaching out more. And, you know, everyone sort of says this autopsy, the GOP is dead, and that you need to change all of your principles. And I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. I, I would like to see some tweaks here and there. I think having a sensible immigration policy would be a great start, and that's something that, um, you know, you can still respect the rule of law and deal with the issue. That would make it more palatable for uh, Hispanic Americans to vote for us. But, you know, when you're dealing with some of these issues, I think it's just about how you talk about them and why they matter to people and this whole notion of compassionate conservatism and talking about these issues in a way that it's opportunity for people and really getting back to our roots on that. And that's what I think the party was always meant to be, but we've lost our way a little bit in how we communicate that to people. Well, there's no question the party seems to have been in conflict with itself. I mean, look no further than this past CPAC conference where Mm -hmm. a moderate like, uh, or someone like Chris Christie was not even invited. And they're also, I think in a lot of areas and a lot of conservative areas, they, they are saying, well, let's get even more conservative. Let's not, Mm -hmm. uh, let's not, let's not moderate anything message. Don't, don't become a second democratic party. Well, you know, and that's been one of my biggest frustrations personally is because, you know, we were supposed to be the party of the big tent, and I think we need to start embracing, you know, all shades of red. Not every Republican is going to fit into every mold of, you know, what, like having this notion of purists and that everyone has to be on the same page with every single issue. And, you know, I tend to be more liberal on social issues. Does that make me less of a Republican, you know? And I think so many times we lose elections because, People sit on their hands or they don't get involved and they don't come out to vote because maybe they're not conservative enough or, you know, whatever the case is. But I think that it costs us elections and we need to start, you know, especially in areas where we don't have enrollment advantages, that we really need to be conscious of supporting, you know, the the larger, the the party in in a bigger way. And, you know, you saw it with Mitt Romney as well and, People made the case after the election that, you know, we've had moderate nominees the past two presidential elections, and that's why we've lost. And I don't believe that that was the problem at all. One group, if you, the city and state article that we identified before that identified promising up-and-coming rising stars in the GOP, it talked a lot about minority outreach. But one group that's particular interest to the listeners of this show is uh, the Orthodox Jewish community, mm-hmm. which has uh, certainly become far more red uh, over the last couple of years, and that was kind of, that outreach was kind of left out entirely. It was, and that, and and it shouldn't have been because it's been a very important voting block, and it's and I don't want to just you know say it's monolithic and everyone votes the same, but having an, an organized 
effort, like you saw, I mean, certainly make the case that it helped propel Bob Turner to victory and Simka Felder in the city and others. So, um, you know, that's been a huge area. And I think, you know, traditionally Republicans have ran off the Jewish vote, especially in areas like in Westchester where they say, well, everyone votes Democratic, but the Orthodox community has been, you know, more conservative and and I know it's galvanized around, you know, issues like gay marriage. But I think at the end of the day, it needs you need to have a candidate that can reach out to all different constituencies. What do you see uh, as taking place this year in 2013, uh, what, as uh, in the city in particular? You know, is the Republican brand damaged so much by the current scandals that it, it can't recover? No, I don't think, you know, you can attribute it to that. There's certainly, you know, that's that's been an issue that's in the news right now. Um, I don't know how much that's going to actually resonate with the voters, but the the organization of the party I view as a bigger challenge because it's not, you know, where it needs to be. Um, I happen to really like Joe Loda as a mayoral candidate. I think he is certainly the best qualified and will do the best job. Um, for the city and has the best chance of winning out of all of the candidates. Um, I would like to see us avoid a primary if that was possible. Um, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. But, you know, this is certainly someone that I think um, can can do outreach to multiple different areas and bridge the gap and help grow the party. And that's going to be important for this year's election to rebuild and you know, next year we have the statewide, all of our Senate and Assembly seats are up again. So The party's got to be nervous about the statewide elections coming up with uh, Governor Cuomo looking very formidable and there really not being anybody on the horizon. Can you identify somebody who might be interested in taking on that task? <laughs> There's been a lot of talk about that, and I know um, Chairman Cox has mentioned some possible names Um you know, we certainly hold a lot of the county executive seats across the state. I know, um, you know, Rob Estorino has been mentioned as one, but I think he's, you know, entirely focused on running for re-election this year and focusing on the goals that he set set out to accomplish in Westchester. Uh, Mark Molinaro up in uh, Dutchess County has been mentioned. Uh, Greg Edwards from Chautauqua County is another one. So I think we have a lot of... Uh, potential that could be would make great candidates but it is tough i mean he's sitting on over 20 million dollars his numbers are have declined but they're still you know fairly solid at this point so you but know, Jessica, the thing with politics well, is you never you know the, the climate could change in a heartbeat you never know what could happen so. absolutely but jessica the counties that you mentioned with the exception of westchester mm-hmm. are tiny and yeah. I, I think the the gop has, the only way they've been able to win in the past has really been going ahead and running up victories in the large suburban counties mm-hmm. of Westchester and Nassau, Suffolk. And if you look at Nassau County, where I live in particular, when I was younger, Nassau County was solidly Republican and mm-hmm. had a Republican enrollment majority. Now it's got a significant Democratic enrollment majority, even yeah. though it has a Republican county executive. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's up for election this year. So I think that one thing, and one thing I attribute that to, is so many people moving from the city who are always going to be Democrats because the Republican Party really doesn't compete enough in the city. Uh, it doesn't really, they don't feel candidates. They don't really do a whole lot of mm-hmm. party building. I, I don't, you can disagree with that if you want. No, I, but, I agree but, completely with but, you. And that, and that continues to spill over. It's hard for me to see, and I like uh, Greg Edwards, but Chautauqua County is, you can't compare that to the wave of of Democratic votes that exist in the urban areas of New York State. Yeah, no question. I was just mentioning him as someone that, you know, certainly has the management skills. I mean, he ran for lieutenant governor. He he has the potential to go out there and make a, you know, be a good candidate for the party. It's very difficult coming from you know, the southern tier of New York to mount a statewide campaign against a popular um, governor that, that's sitting on a huge campaign war chest. But, you know, the the issue is it, it has to start now. It had to start yesterday to start building the party up, um, raising money, putting these organizations in the place. And certainly in areas where you do have elected officials, the parties are stronger because with that it comes their own 
uh, people in their own organization and their own uh, fundraising machine. But, you know, it's it, it's not looking good at this point. Okay, Jessica Proud, a consultant, PR, and political consultant with NLO Strategies. Thank you very, very much for joining us here on Spin Class. And as we progress over the course of the 2013 campaign, hopefully you'll be updating us again soon. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. This is Spin Class. We're talking politics here with Michael Fragan, and we talk a lot about political activism, that importance people of voting and being active, and that's really what the show is all about, trying to involve people, trying to get them interested in the political process and what happens. That's why we talk about it. The most important thing is to put that into action. Whatever you hear on this show and other shows, when you're more informed, you actually have to go out and vote, but also approach your elected officials and tell them what it is that you want. And we have a special guest on the show, Dr. Richard Slushel from uh, NORPAC. I'm sorry, was is it doctor? Yes, it is. Oh, it is. Okay, excellent. I took a little guess on that one. No. Dr. Richard Slushel from NORPAC, who is chairing the upcoming mission to Washington. And it's uh, if you haven't been, you should definitely consider it. It's quite a it's, – it's not the same as APAC, and I think he's going to explain to us – but uh, NORPAC is a powerhouse nonpartisan political action committee and uh, really involved in a lot, many House and Senate races and really has uh, set a gold standard for activism in the Jewish community. So, Dr. Schlossel, welcome to Spin Class. Michael, thank you for having me, and uh, I uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak to your many viewers, in particular to... Uh, uh, follow up on uh, what you said about our mission, which is Wednesday, May 8th. It's a uh, back and forth and one day mission to Washington, D.C., and anybody can register um, for the NORPAC mission by going to our website, which is uh, norpac.net, um, and it's very easy to uh, uh, get uh, registered. It takes maybe uh, a minute or two to do. Um, and um, as you said, it's a, a phenomenal experience. Uh, if you go to norpac.net, you can register for our mission, uh, which is um, Wednesday on May 8th. Um, Tell us a little bit about the mission, though. Give us give us the idea of the day. You get on a bus, you go to Washington, you hear a lot of speeches, you come back? Exactly. Um, okay. But let me give you a little more detail. Um, you get up very early in the morning. Um, we have uh, approximately 25 buses. Uh, going from uh, many, many locations around the tri-state area, from Manhattan, from Long Island, from Queens, from Riverdale, from uh, different points in New Jersey, including Teaneck, Edison, uh, West Orange, etc. So there's tremendous uh, opportunity for wherever your listeners are located to uh, find uh, transportation back and forth. Um, we give people uh, breakfast uh, on the bus, lunch uh, in Washington, and dinner on the way home. Uh, but when you get to Washington, the first thing that happens is at the Washington Convention Center, we're addressed by uh, national leaders, uh, really famous uh, and influential uh, members of the Congress and Senate who come to speak to us about issues in the Middle East. And they speak to us uh, for about an hour to an hour and a half time. And then you get to go in very small groups to meet one-on-one -on -one with the members of Congress uh, in their offices. Um, either with the members of Congress or with their aides. And it's, it's an amazing experience if you haven't done it. Um, you get to do something that less than 1% of American citizens ever do, which is to uh, meet with a, a congressman or senator in their office. And there's three or four meetings at 1, 2, 3, 4 o'clock. Then we will reconvene at the uh, convention center and uh, head home and get home somewhere around 10 p.m. Uh, to the various locations. But during the meetings that we have with the members of Congress, we advocate for uh, many things that are important for the U.S.-Israel relationship, things that benefit both the United States and Israel, things such as foreign aid for Israel. Uh, the foreign aid for Israel is not only beneficial to Israel, but 75% of foreign aid is, in fact, in the form of military uh, equipment that has to be purchased back in the United States. So not only does it help Israel security, it creates jobs here in the United States in different uh, parts of the country. Uh, we advocate for different um, items such as sanctions against Iran. Um, we were one of the first people to talk to the members of Congress about Iron Dome funding. Uh, before anybody, before many of the congressmen even knew what Iron Dome was, we were the ones educating them about it, and that uh, uh, obviously has been a major strategic 
um, advance uh, for Israel um, and uh, for uh, Israel's uh, allies in the future. So it's it's really a great day. How does somebody sitting at home saying, okay, there are 25 buses going, Mm -hmm. and really, do I really have to go? What does one person make a difference? How does one person make a difference? Well, first of all, um, we have our strength in numbers. Um, We uh, get to um, close to 1,000, sometimes more people, by bringing lots of individuals, um, one listener, um, adds up with another listener, one uh, attendee adds up with another, or that person might bring a friend, that person might bring uh, a child, might bring a parent, might bring a cousin. Uh, and little by little, um, those are important things uh, that add up to reach our goal of numbers, and numbers are critically important. Uh, when they hear in the offices of Congress that we brought a 1,000 people, they're stunned. They're amazed. There's no such organization that brings so many lay people, not professional lobbyists, but lay people uh, to a cause, and they're just incredibly impressed with um, our passion and know that this is the will of the American people by the number of people we bring. But in terms of um, the difference that an individual person makes, we hear stories over and over again how an individual person makes a key point during a meeting that helps to carry the meeting and carry that day. So uh, each person comes with a different perspective and background, and and uh, everybody can really make an incredible difference. What made you want to get involved? Well, I attended uh, NORPAC meeting, uh, and then after that, when um, I went. To, how long? How long ago was that? Uh, oh God, I don't want to date myself, um, but um, give us a decade. <laughs> it was uh, probably about seven, eight years ago, um, and then after that, I um, became involved by uh, going to different um, parlor meetings that would uh, occur in the tri-state area where members of Congress would come to New Jersey, to New York, to meet with us and in the setting of about 20 people speak with us about their thoughts about the Middle East, you would air concerns, questions, suggestions. And it's just uh, a really amazing uh, situation that most people aren't aware of that uh, members of Congress um, are interested in what we have to say they're educated by what we have to say. Um, some of the things that we say uh, eventually end up becoming uh, legislation that's not only the law of the land, but um, with the United States' leadership, uh, other countries in the world follow our leadership. So there's tremendous leverage and impact that we have, uh, and those were the things that uh, made me get involved. How do you communicate to other people out there the the critical nature of the citizen lobbyist. And I know you you differentiated between a professional lobbyist, mm-hmm. but really what I look at is everybody's really a lobbyist, just a question of we you get you lobby for yourself or not. Mm-hmm. And I, I what you're you and Norpac are doing are lobbying on your own behalf because it's your own self interest out there. Uh, how how do you create the citizen lobbyist? How do you train the people over the years and and this year when they go down, if people say, well, I have nothing to say, I don't don't know what to say. Sure. Um, That's a great question. And everybody who's listening to this should be completely reassured that uh, if you go with us on the mission, you can say as much as you want and take an active role as you want. Some people prefer not to. They prefer to let other people carry the ball. They're both important uh, roles, both in terms of... um, uh, bringing our numbers, uh, the strength in numbers issue. Um, in terms of uh, preparing, uh, again, a lot of people say, well, who am I to speak to a congressman? And I don't even know the issues. But in advance of the mission, we prepare talking points on the key issues that we're advocating for. And people get those in writing. But in addition, we have training sessions throughout the uh, metropolitan area. The one that we have in New Jersey, we've had um, uh, Steve Rothman, our former congressman, come to speak to us about what's going through a congressman's head. We speak about the uh, the different uh, talking points and bills we're advocating for. And people learn how to uh, uh, present this. We have a mock lobbying session where Steve Rothman, uh, in a very cute way, challenges us and gets in our face to try to uh, give us a hard time. But it's all very helpful, and, and the training is out there. Uh, we provide it all to people so they're completely prepared. But again, if somebody just wants to attend and take it all in and, and observe and be counted, they can do that as well. How many individual members of Congress are you going to meet with over the course of that day? We have really an amazing, uh, an amazing percentage of members of Congress that we meet with. Um, 
for the uh, congressmen, the representatives. We're somewhere in the ballpark of uh, meeting 85% of the members of Congress, and for senators, we're usually in the 90 to 96% range. We meet with anywhere from 90 to 96 senators. There is nothing short of the State of the Union address that so many members of Congress and Senate participate in all on the same day. It's really amazing. And when you walk the halls of Congress and you see all the NORPAC kippahs and the NORPAC buttons, uh, it's really it's really quite impressive. And uh, and uh, everybody at the end of the day knows who NORPAC is and is talking about the things that we're talking about. Not to detract anything or create any type of competitive nature, but what would you describe as the difference between the APAC policy conference well, and the NORPAC think, mission? Sure, I don't think there's anything uh, competitive between us and APAC. In fact, I think we're that's why I, that's why I said I didn't want to. Right, we are actually um, we actually supplement each other in a way, um, and I like to tell people that uh, many of the members of NORPAC are APAC members. We're big fans of APAC. Uh, APAC is in a way our big brother. And a lot of the things that APAC advocates for, we advocate for as well. Technically, there's a difference between APAC and NORPAC. APAC, despite its name, is not a PAC or a political action committee. They're a public affairs committee. And because of that, they do not um, endorse any candidate or support any candidate running for office. We do. So we will endorse candidates. We will raise money for candidates. Uh, we will help candidates who are, uh, um, we think that are uh, helpful on our issues uh, towards uh, re-election. So that's uh, a significant difference, but in all other ways, we uh, we very often work in sync. Dr. Richard Slushel, the chairman or co-chairman, I think you have a triumvirate at the chairmanship. Right. Of, uh, I'm co-chairing this with uh, David Steinberg um, and uh, Lori Bamel. Um, and where are, where are each of you from? Um, Dave is from uh, Queens. Lori's from Teaneck. I'm from Englewood, New Jersey. Okay, so a good geographic diversity there. Right. And uh, really appreciate you coming on, and we hope to hear about the mission afterward as well. So. I would be thrilled to tell you about it again. It's Wednesday, May 8th, and I'll tell you one last thing to uh, um, maybe convince some people to go. Um, the... Uh, the day that you might spend with your teenage or college-age child, your son or daughter, is like no other day you'll spend with them in the uh, in the entire year. Um, for your so don't child. just go, bring your kids. Exactly, it's okay. a it's a it's a tremendous father, daughter, mother, son type of uh, experience, and to see them um, speaking with congressmen and advocating positions and asking questions uh, by the. In the beginning of the day, they're a little bit intimidated. By the end of the day, your 16-year-old will be ready to run for Congress. Okay. Well, all you future congressmen and congresswomen out there, uh, take heed of the NORPAC mission to Washington. Thank you very much for joining us here on Spin Class. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. This is Spin Class Politics with Michael Fragan. And just as a closing word, we've uh, been enmeshed, embroiled in scandal here over the last couple weeks. We talked about it. I didn't really want to address it this week. At all, but out of the shadows of scandal, we were reminded of one that's probably certainly insignificant, uh, comparatively, and certainly not of the corruption type, just of the perhaps personal corruption type. But I, I would say more of uh, personal stupidity. And that would be one former congressman, Anthony Weiner, who has now potentially decided that he's going to think about running for mayor. That is mayor of New York City. And maybe even this year. So let that sink in for a second. Former, former Congressman Anthony Weiner has given an interview to the New York Times, and he might actually be interested in running for mayor. Now, there are a number of reasons that I can think of. There's personal redemption. There's the fact that he doesn't want to always be a punchline for the rest of his life and might as well just take a shot at it. There's also that thing about the matching funds that he has all those matching funds that he had raised money for this race, and he has he's raised a ton of money for this race, and he has a lot of funds available, and he can only use that for this mayoral race. So you know what, folks? That sounds a little bit similar to another guy who also wanted to run for mayor and now has just been arrested and indicted not to make a connection between Weiner and Smith. But Malcolm Smith, it seems, only wanted to run for mayor on the Republican line inexplicably, because there was no way he was going to win or even win the primary, was to get that matching funds and to be able to disperse that. 
And I think matching funds have always been looked at by the out there as kind of this great thing for good government. But I think as we're seeing a little bit more that we got to look a little bit more at those matching funds and this matching fund system because it seems to be creating an incentive for politicians to want to do things that might not be so glamorous and savory. Anthony Weiner, if you want to get into the race, I think it's great. It'll really spice things up. And I think you have there is a niche potentially for you. But uh, don't feel that personal redemption and personal forgiveness will necessarily translate into votes. We'll, we'll speak to you next week. This is Spin Class. Stay tuned for the Book of Life with Charlie Harari on the Nachum Siegel Network. And thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.